0: We don't need any statistics to tell us that kids are spending way more time online now. And that's been even truer since school shutdowns during the pandemic. Now, the World Wide Web can be a great place. It's where most of us go first for information, not to mention entertainment. In PISA 2018, 49% of 15-year-olds said the Internet allows them to collaborate with other people to work out problems together. But how much Internet is too much Internet for kids? Especially younger ones. And how safe is the digital world our children roam around in? Are kids savvy enough about their data? Can they tell the difference between good and bad information? Are they protected enough from the dark side of the digital world, like cyberbullying, hate content, sextortion? I'm Clara Young, and I work in the OECD Directorate for Education and Skills. To talk us through these issues, I'm happy to have today Elizabeth Melovidov, who's an expert on digital parenting and children's digital rights at the Council of Europe, and my colleague, Tracy Burns, Senior Analyst at the OECD Directorate for Education and Skills. Both of them consulted on the OECD's newly adopted recommendation on children in the digital environment It sets out the principles of a safe digital environment for children and broad policy recommendations on how best to achieve this. So hello, Elizabeth. Hello, Tracy. Hello, it's a
1: pleasure. Hello, so happy to be here.
0: Uh, Now, Tracy, very quickly, how much time, just to get a lay of the land, how much time roughly are kids spending on the internet now?
2: Well, it really depends on their age, to be honest, and it depends how you count the Internet. But just to give you two examples, if you're looking at very young children, sort of three- to four-year-olds, looking at TV, which is actually the Internet in many cases, on average, 98% watch TV for 13 hours a week. Slightly older kids, if you look at the 15-year-olds taking the PISA test, it's on average across the OECD 35 hours
1: a week online. Elizabeth, you were going to say something about that? Yes, I just wanted to add to Tracy's response in that we have also seen that children have a digital footprint and identity at earlier ages because of parents and grandparents and families sharing ultrasounds and images. There was a recent study done by the Parent Zone that was saying how right before a child is at the age of five years old, I believe, images have been shared more than 1,500 times on internet. So I think that that's something that we should consider just a child's physical presence when they are engaging in screens, but also their digital presence.
0: That's something um, I had not even thought of. That's an interesting point to bring up. About the amount of time that children are spending online and how young they are as they're doing it, of course, with the school closures during COVID, I think that that has exacerbated the situation, has it not? Tracy, what's your point of view on that?
2: Yes, I mean, it's quite obvious that that kids are spending more time online and they have been doing so since the start of the pandemic in many cases, particularly when they were unable to go outside or they were locked inside their houses as part of lockdown measures. I think that's clearly a cause for concern on a few levels. And I just want to make it clear that it's not the amount of time per se that's the problem, not the increase of time online. It's that while they were doing this, while they were away from school, in many cases, they had less supervision. First, because parents were potentially, you know, overseeing multiple children in their home, but also trying to work at the same time. But also because their teachers were not with them. So they weren't really able to monitor what they were doing at the same time as they were engaging in coursework, for example.
0: I've also heard that there has been just to talk about, unfortunately, the darker side of the digital world. That there has been a sharp rise in child victimization over the past year.
1: Yes, exactly, Clara. Something that we've seen is that when you think about it quite logically, there are more children online So therefore, there will be more predators online as well. In fact, Europol did a study, a report that came out in June of 2020, that was rightly called Exploiting Isolation, Sexual Predators Increasingly Targeting Children During the COVID Pandemic. And so there you can pretty clearly see the the numbers, because as we've discussed, you know, children are online, they are at home, they're unsupervised, because even for myself as as a working mother, I wasn't always watching exactly everything that my children, were doing. And, you know, bad actors were taking advantage of this situation, not just for children, but also for other types of cyber criminality. And there was just a huge increase over the pandemic. I think I would also like to just point out that cyberbullying was something else that felt that, that there was an increase because there were more children online, they were isolated, they were just talking and chatting and sometimes not always being respectful of one another.
0: Now, the OECD just adopted the recommendation on children in the digital environment. Tracy, what are, just in basic categories, the kinds of things that we need to be worried about for kids digitally? What are the risks that we're looking at?
2: Yeah, sure. And, and in fact, this is a major milestone for our colleagues in in the Science and Technology Directorate because they not just adopted the recommendation, countries signed on to it. So it's one of the first sort of statements that really sets out the kinds of risks that children have. It's been updated from 2012, so it's much more timely, and you've got a plan for action of what you can do around it. So in terms of just very briefly the four categories of risks there are content risks, which is if the child is the recipient sort of, of harmful or illegal digital t- content that includes things like racist or hate speech, or, but also advertising and spam because that's also potentially illegal if directed at children without letting them know that it's advertising, for example. Another kind is conduct, which is that they are an actor in a peer-to-peer exchange. So this would include bullying, harassing others, sharing harmful materials, so forwarding, for example, explicit texts or images. A third category is contract risks, which is where the child is a participant in the digital market because we have to be clear the online space is a marketplace. Um, So the various contract risks include things like inappropriate marketing, as I've said, but economic risks, so being exposed to digital fraud, and security risks, where there are digital scams, identity thefts, things like that. And the very last type of risk is contact, which is where the child is a victim or a participant of an interactive encounter. And that includes, for example, being bullied, harassed, or stalked, but also tracking or harvesting of personal information and misusing that personal data.
0: Now, I understand that when countries responded to in preparing for the recommendations and we did a study with different countries to find out what were the biggest problems that they felt for children in the digital sphere, that cyberbullying, as Elizabeth brought up, was the biggest problem. What are some of the things, Elizabeth, that we can do as parents and in schools about cyberbullying?
1: Yes, I think it's very interesting to see that cyberbullying stays at the top level of concern, of risk. As you know, I also work for E-Enfance, which is the French helpline, which is the French Child Online Protection Association that runs the 3018 number now. And we have consistently seen across Europe with the other 27 helplines that over the past five years, cyberbullying has always been the number one reason why children and parents are calling in for assistance. Parents often believe it's strange. Danger or grooming or something else, but it is cyberbullying. And ironically enough, cyberbullying is something that really parents and educators can be empowered to help their children, to help reduce these numbers. And I just also wanted to mention something else that Tracy had talked about, online hate. And I think it's really crucial to, to spell out, especially after during this pandemic and after, that we've seen an increase in anti-Asian hate sentiment. We have seen an increase in racism and misogyny. All of this is just, it goes back to being kind online. And if people are just forgetting these very simple things with online disinhibition just thinking that they're anonymous, they can say what they want. So I would also say for parents in general, the number one thing that they can do to support their children is to have communications with them, have conversations, asking them how are they doing, what's happening, so that way they can intervene. Tracy?
2: Yeah, and just to jump in here, absolutely agreed with Elizabeth. I think one of the things, and maybe this is a ray of hope in a way, which is One of the reasons why we see more activity is because people can identify it better. They know that it's problematic. They understand. They have understood that it's not acceptable in cyberbullying, for example. So this understanding that it's not just that I don't feel good about it. Is it me? Maybe it's a joke. Maybe I should be able to take it that conversation has moved on in many cases it's not gone but it's moved on and I think this is very positive so it means that they know they can call that help line the parents know what it is and so this for me is a a fabulous piece of news because it means that we have shifted the conversation we've shifted awareness and when we look at for example what education ministries are saying is their top priority we get cyberbullying this is great, there's an awareness there that was not there 10 years ago. Just to finish, what we would like from our work is that one of the things that people know less about is the data piece. So when are your data being harvested? When it, what is the possibility for misuse of that data or for identity theft, things like that? And so part of that is unpacking that and understanding when it's a problem and what the risks are, but also raising awareness because once people are more aware of it and can spot it, we'll also see those numbers rising as well, because part of it is just how much is reported. And that requires awareness as well.
1: I was just going to agree with you, Tracy, uh, and say that, yes, with the same extent that we see that with technology companies and the reporting mechanisms, because we see the numbers are just skyrocketing and people are wondering, wait a minute, does this mean that more children are being exploited, uh, cyberbullied, bullied, et cetera? Or is that technology, has technology become more efficient in detecting? So, I mean, there are arguments on both sides, but I agree with the the awareness piece that Tracy is saying. And, and I really do think that we need to keep that hope out there about what we're doing in the digital environment. I'm always wary when we talk about risk and when we lead a conversation with risk, because I think that there are so many more opportunities.
0: I think we can also talk about digital skills, that children and parents and teachers are starting to pick up and if there is one digital skill that's being taught at school is that children are starting to understand that there could be consequences if their information is publicly made available online do you feel that that kids are aware of the possible consequences of having their information online
1: is that sinking in I think it depends. I'm going to jump in before Tracy does. But I do think that they are more aware, especially when I speak with children and, and do workshops with them. They are more aware, but ironically enough, Clara, they also seem like they don't care. They feel like there's not too much that they can do about it anyway. And that if they want to use this service, they have to click and go on, which I find an interesting sort of conflict because they they understand about their data, about keeping things private, about not posting in their school uniform or something like that. But by the same token, they don't always agree, but they have to accept some of the, the terms that are out there anyway.
0: Tracy?
2: Well, so a lot of this depends on the age of the child, right? So very young children have a different understanding of privacy and a different understanding of how and how you navigate the digital space. If you're looking at sort of tweens and adolescents, it's true, I mean, absolutely what Elizabeth said, but some of those decisions are decisions they're making themselves. This is really interesting work by Sonia Livingston and her colleagues around what children, not just what they understand about risks as we define them, but how they define risks, because it's their own digital life as well. And so if they're making a calculation to share something about themselves to access a surface, it may not be a, a sort of in a a victim mode. It may be in a, I've made this decision and in fact I've created an avatar with three different fake names and I use those different personalities in different ways. One of the questions I guess for us really is when we're thinking about this is how we define whose privacy and who gets to set the limits for themselves and for, not for very young children obviously, a much higher, stronger role for parents and caretakers, but for adolescents there's also an open conversation around can they also, on their own terms, decide what they want to reveal, and perhaps you know their levels as as Elizabeth said, they might be more willing to share some of their data, but it's a calculated willingness for me that's a
0: that's a question around who
2: gets to decide
0: just a little bit more on the on this data problem. Could you give us a quick run through of all the different ways that data on children or actually just on everybody? can be collected. I mean, there is the data that we give out knowing that we are doing it, but there's other things too.
1: Yeah. I would just, I would just mention, you know, briefly just this whole concept of of profiling, right. And our data and what it's used for. So, you know, that's why we even had the general data protection regulation. It's to protect us from, you know, all of our personal data being collected, whether it is to identify our, our you know, our health, our, our personal situation, our work, our interest, our, our reliability, our location. I think that we, a lot of people don't realize what they're giving away. So for example, I, I run a Facebook community. And sometimes if I'm trying to talk more to parents, you know, I can easily click a few things in my Facebook settings to push out a message to, parents of a certain age in a certain area who are interested in internet safety or digital citizenship or what have you. Now, how am I able to do that? It's because Facebook has collected the data on those parents. It's the same thing with our children, um, even with things like uh, watching YouTube and the algorithms that are being um, uh, detected to push out the next show on YouTube, on Netflix, on any of these things. It's collecting our interest in order to better serve us, for sure, to provide more things that we would like. But sometimes that can be a disservice, especially when children, when people, adult users as well, when they just don't understand how much of their data is being profiled and harvested.
0: And I think the the amount of data that we will be producing and especially children, will become even more intense with the Internet of Things, AI being embedded in toys, games. So it's really something that we need to deal with.
2: There's a really interesting set of research done by an Estonian researcher in, in one of our books looking at the datification of childhood, but also the datification of parenting, and sort of arguing that you know parents are under a lot of pressure to sort of be perfect parents in a way, and so there's a whole market for that, sort of selling the latest and best tool to observe, to watch, so that you can monitor, all of which is datified because they're all digital. And so without necessarily making any explicit choices around, you know, what is the digital footprint of my unborn child or do I really want to, you know, share the respiration rate of my baby in its crib with this large international company, there is in fact a huge transfer of what is quite intimate details. And a lot of it's driven, of course, by very well-meaning parents who are simply trying to do the best they can. So it absolutely is a a big conversation, and it's much more far-reaching than, you know, what are we thinking when children sort of navigate the Internet for a particular task? It's, as you said, more and more becoming integrated into all aspects of our lives.
1: Yeah, if I could just jump in again, Clara, the example Tracy gave reminded me of, I was in a conference a few years ago, justly so, talking about uh, the Internet of Things, and this was the first time that I was presented with connected diapers, right? The idea that you can have a sensor in the diaper that will detect the hydration rate of the diaper of your child, et cetera, and that you can then see it on your smartphone. Well, what was really interesting for me as a parent and as a lawyer is that I immediately put on my lawyer cap and said... What would happen if you had that data being collected and then parents wanted to divorce and they wanted to say you were neglectful in your child keeping responsibilities? You're not a good mother. You're not a good father. What have you or proof against the nanny, for example, why you want to fire your caregiver? And again, we, we just we. We are going beyond the limits of what, you know, we're really thinking how our data can be used without, you know, as Tracy said, well-meaning, having a good time. There's so many wonderful toys and adventures that are out there, but we're not always thinking about privacy, our data, our sense of self, and what we're putting out into the digital world.
0: Have either of you come across good programs or initiatives that teach children about their data and what they should be aware of? Well, there's a lot of initiatives in education,
2: at least if you're in formal education. uh, Very little in early childhood, I should just say very quickly, that's a huge gap. And more and more countries are understanding that that is a huge gap, and they must be a little bit more proactive in terms of sort of giving the staff the skills that they need to engage a little bit more with the digital world. Once you're in formal schooling, particularly for, you know, 5, 6, 7, and then 10, 11-year-olds, There are a lot of programs where it can range from, you know, a not particularly compelling piece of paper that's sort of distributed by a teacher to there's initiatives where you've got experts from different firms or some of the big platforms have a social responsibility side where they send people to classrooms to talk to the kids and illustrate. Just say, you know, what's your names? Let me get online. I'm gonna put your Put your prog- projects together or your photos together that I can get from looking at you, and let me tell you what I can find out about you just from this information. And that's a really great, you know, hands-on example of you might maybe just posted a photo of yourself in your school uniform by your street sign, but you've told somebody where you go to school, who you, your gender, you know, potentially possibly. And also where you live. So these are there are very small things and a lot of information and and that kind of hands-on intervention can actually be quite powerful in teaching kids you know what to look for or at least to be very cautious because of this you, you don't necessarily think twice before you do it. But there are a lot. I mean, there's really a lot of media literacy more and more for teenagers and increasingly for younger kids.
1: Yeah and and it's here that I, I'd I'd want to play devil's advocate a bit just because I think that there's so much information so many resources out there and I think therein lies the problem, is that because there's so much, people are unsure of what to use, what's the best, and that is is difficult. But I 100% agree that, I mean, I think Tracy and I, because we're in this area, we can say, oh, yeah, it's so simple to, you know, that intervention, just to Google your name. You know, I tell parents all the time, I tell kids all the time, but I don't know how much they continue to do that, you know, after I've gone. But I also, with my work for the Council of Europe, for example, we've created a digital citizenship education handbook. You know, we also got the sign-off. of the 47 ministers of education on a digital citizenship framework curriculum. But, you know, all of these things, a statement, I should say, not the curriculum, all of these things are in process and, and we're trying. But until it's there, I think that those simple messages of just, you know, telling people to really think about what they are putting out there, we have to strike home with that first because, again, we can get so lost in all the different programs
0: there's also the matter of, you know, along with the awareness of the data trail that young kids are leaving behind, it's that it's, as you mentioned earlier, Elizabeth, being used to commercially profile children. But there's also the case that children are a little bit confused about What's okay to do? For example, in the PISA 2018, one of the digital literacy questions was, if you get an email, if you click on the link and uh, you get a prize, but you've got to fill out a form with your information, you know, is it a good idea to do it or not? 40% of students clicked that it was a good idea to click on the link, Um What are we seeing in terms of educating children about phishing emails or things like transactions in online games that, you know, the loot box or the different things that young children can be exposed to that they're being taken advantage of commercially?
1: Yes, unfortunately, I do, I do believe that we're, we're seeing an increase in these these situations and that, you know, you, you mentioned that children don't know to click, but I say that even adult users have difficulty sometimes because that is the whole beauty of the, this kind of cyber criminal element is to make something look so real that, that you click. So I think that this discernment and this critical thinking piece is missing in so much of what we're, we're doing online. And I just feel that we have to be able to do more within that digital citizenship, within our regular communications and education, whether we're talking in a school setting or in the home setting, to, to really help our children understand what they're doing with the loot boxes, with its leading to gambling, with anything that swirls and moves around and, and what they're giving away. I also just want to mention one thing before I pass over to Tracy, is that we, she had mentioned about you know children using three different accounts and having different avatars. But I think that that is also confusing for, for children because they know that they're not supposed to create a fake account or use a pseudonym, and yet sometimes they should because we want to protect their privacy. So, I mean, these are challenging times for for children to navigate and for young people.
2: And just, uh, I love this actually, because we're, we're swapping, Elizabeth, we're swapping the sort of good news and bad news hats, right? So sometimes I'm like, it's all good, and she's like, it's terrible, and sometimes the opposite. So in this case, I get to put on the good news hat, which is if we look at the PISA data, I mean, so there is definitely some bad news, right? less than half of the kids could actually, these are 15-year-olds, could actually distinguish fact from opinion. You know, that's a very sobering statistic. This is 2018. On the good news side, if you look at you know, the questions around you know what to do if you've received this phishing email or spam, the answers, the percentages of kids who knew what to do were not great, but if they had been educated on the topic, if they reported that, yes, I received instruction, etc., they did score significantly better. So education is making a difference at least in the way they're able to answer these questions on the PISA test. Of course the biggest thing and the biggest challenge is also the fact that technology moves so quickly that education will always be playing catch up, right? Even the most sophisticated teacher or schoolmaster or educational material takes time to develop and so are you always going to be able to be on the cutting edge with the fraudsters or with the big companies who may or may not be following the data protection regulations? That's an open question. And I, I personally don't think education can answer that alone. I think this is something where we very much need to partner with other sectors who have the expertise because it's it's not realistic to ask an individual teacher or an individual schoolmaster to be able to move and change and progress all the time as much as you would expect it to. So my two cents on that.
1: And I agree, Tracy, I'm coming back with you. I agree. Because this sort of holistic approach, we really need everyone. We need the educators. We need the parents. I mean, all alone, I will not say it's an insurmountable challenge, but it is a huge challenge. And if we do these things together, educators with the tech companies, with governments, we we will make strides. See, there's a positive message, Clara. Well, I don't
0: know about you and I don't know about my children, but I'm a little bit more educated about what's going on in the digital sphere. Thanks very much, Elizabeth. And thanks very much, Tracy.
1: It was a pleasure.
0: Absolutely. I'm Clara Young. To find out more about the OECD's work on education and skills, check out our Twitter page. Our handle is at OECD, E-D-U, skills.